Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this week's episode, assistant editor Michelle Rundell's reporter Riley Snyder and I talk about the post-election lawsuits that are going on in the state right now. The Trump team is suing over alleged voter fraud, several Republicans in the state are suing over similar concerns, and there is a race in Clark County that came down to just 10 votes. We'll go over all of those lawsuits and more in that segment. After that, Joey talks with reporter Jasmine Orozco-Rodriguez about what immigration may look like under a new presidential administration, what Joe Biden has proposed to change about immigration, and how that'll affect Nevadans. Then editor John Ralston and I talk about a few movies that we watched over the Thanksgiving break and recommend a few that you might want to check out during your holiday break. And at the end of the show, I talk with reporter Megan Messerly to get the latest numbers and newest developments related to the coronavirus pandemic in Nevada. All right, and welcome to Indie Matters. I am Joey Lovato up here in Reno, and I am joined by Riley Snyder, also up here in Reno, and Michelle Rendell's down in Carson City. And we are doing a, a bit of a lawsuit roundup, I guess I'm going to call it. Uh, there's been a lot of lawsuits going on and a lot of a lot of court hearings happening in the state. So we're going to kind of just go over all of them. I don't know where we want to start. Well, Riley was really following the big one, which is a formal election contest going on based in Carson City Court. And the Trump campaign is attempting to have Trump declared the winner of the entire state of Nevada. Now, you know, Biden won the state by 34,000 votes and is on track to win over Nevada six electoral votes. The Trump campaign is seeking to try to convince a court that there is more fraud in, in this race that would overturn the election and warrant a, a Trump victory. So maybe Riley can give a few more details on where that's going. Sure. So the lawsuit itself was filed about two weeks ago in Carson City District Court. That's the court. You might be wondering why it wasn't filed in Clark County, because all of these issues that they bring up kind of deal with Las Vegas and Clark County. But Nevada law requires all these cases to be brought in the seat of government. So that's Carson City. And it's what's called an election contest. So in Nevada law, there's a, a process by which a losing candidate can challenge the results of an election if they have evidence that there's enough votes to call the results into doubt or that the person who was declared the winner um, after result, results were certified shouldn't be the winner. So this is kind of the legal framework behind their argument. What we had today, Thursday, we're recording this kind of evening PM edition of Indie Matters podcast. <laughs> there was about a two and a half hour hearing in Judge James Russell's courtroom. Not a lot of evidence was produced publicly. A lot of the things the Trump campaign filed and the responses and depositions that the opponents to this case filed were filed under seal. There was a request to keep that confidential. So there were, I think, a total of seven affidavits filled out by whistleblowers who said they saw a variety of things, including a Biden-Harris van that was used to fill out mail ballots at an early voting site. I think one said that they saw Clark County Registrar of Voters, Joe Gloria, holding a Biden either pin or pen. It was a little bit hard to hear, but that was that was more evidence there was an issue there. So in these cases, it can be kind of difficult for us to independently verify what's going on when they are filed under seal. The Trump campaign has released a little bit more information into sort of their methods for looking into what they claim is mass voter fraud that should call the results of the election into, into question. The response from the Democrats who are the defendants in this lawsuit is basically like, you have to 
show that there's this massive voter fraud, not have the circumstantial. Maybe there was, maybe there wasn't. Things look a little fishy evidence to take the really extraordinary step of reversing the results of, of the election. So Judge Russell hasn't issued a decision as of 8.51 p.m. on Thursday night. He asked both sides in the case to prepare a proposed order by 10 a.m. tomorrow, Friday. By the time you're hearing this, that will probably be published and out. We'll be reporting on it and have a story up on our website. But that's just to give him time to review evidence. Uh, he said there was a lot of claims made today that he wanted to review. The reason that they want to get a decision out as soon as possible is because if there is an appeal, presumably the losing side will try to appeal this to the state Supreme Court, which is the next step. They want as much time as possible as tomorrow's Friday, and the court doesn't work on the weekend, which is kind of difficult for election-related litigation. Obviously, the Electoral College is going to cast its votes this month, so sort of every day is is, is precious with the, the clock ticking closer and closer to that actually happening. And Riley, the campaign, you mentioned in your story that there was data analysis, and they came out of that with some numbers of ballots that they thought were suspicious or potentially from people that weren't living in Nevada or maybe had already cast a ballot. But what exactly did they say about how they came to any of those numbers? Yeah. So again, all of the stuff was filed under seal and they actually just, I think about an hour ago, released the declaration of their witness who did all these number changes. And basically he just ran the national change of address form, which is like a federal database where you can see where people have changed their address or if they filed to change their address for people who are out of state of Nevada, but apparently cast a vote while as a Nevada resident. They say they've controlled to remove military ballots or college students. But again, they just have like the top line numbers. I haven't seen like a list of the 40,000 voters who they say shouldn't have cast a ballot. There are some privacy concerns there, but we saw this happen kind of during closer to election day. It's been a month since election day, it feels like it hasn't been that long, where they released a list of uh, zip codes of voters they said who had cast a ballot while out of state. And it came to be known that a lot of those were legally casting their ballot, either through military absentee, or they were college students, or for a variety of reasons. So I think they're a little hesitant to release that information and to accuse individuals of having fraudulently voted without knowing for sure, just having that change of address form, you know, that that might be like a hint or a clue, but that's not definitive proof that they illegally voted or shouldn't have voted. There might be an explanation there, but we, we don't know because if they have that list, so they're filed under seal, they haven't filed that with the court. So I don't know who of the 40,000 Nevada voters they're saying did so illegally. And Riley, they're literally asking for the electoral votes to be transferred essentially instead of to Biden to Donald Trump. And this is not a, a request for a revote. This is actually a request for a judge to kind of say that Trump actually won the election. Yes, that's what they're asking for, is for the judge to essentially declare under this election contest statute that there's enough uncertainty or fraud or questionable votes that either Nevada shouldn't be allowed to cast its six electoral votes or that its six electoral votes should just be given to Donald Trump. I think the most generous thing I can say about this is that it's a very novel, like legal way of thinking about this. Cause you know, usually I think these sort of lawsuits come like in the, the Ross Miller Stavros Anthony race for Clark County commission, where it's a 10 vote margin. And maybe you find 15 people who might've had an issue or discrepancy and they shouldn't have voted. And if you do that, then it bounces out for Stavros, but 33,000 votes is like 
quite a substantial margin. You know, we've seen the, the Trump campaign and, and their legal team ask for the similar remedy in other states. I think Pennsylvania was one where a federal lawsuit asking for a similar thing was, was rejected. So this is a strategy they've used in other states. And so far, it hasn't panned out. And they are literally, this remedy they're seeking could potentially nullify essentially all Nevadans votes for president if they if the judge indeed granted the idea that Nevada's electoral votes would not be counted. Yeah, that that is what would happen. You know, ultimately, Joe Biden won 306 electoral votes. So there's a number of of lawsuits and litigation. The Trump campaign has been extremely unsuccessful at at really any of those. And sort of their last ditch effort is to ask courts to not certify electoral results and try to throw it to the U.S. House of Representatives or do other sort of weird constitutional gimmicks to try to pull out a victory. But, you know, in the grand scheme of things, you need 270 to win and 306 versus 300 wouldn't make much of a difference. But I think it is sort of a a broad-based strategy by the Trump campaign to try to do this in as many of the close states as possible. And and like you said, we'll have kind of a decision sometime tomorrow morning. And by the time the the listeners are hearing this, there will have already been a decision out. So we'll have a story on our website, thenevadaindependent.com, probably from you, Riley, about about that decision, right? Yes. I like how we plug the website on the podcast, because if you don't know what the (laughs) website URL is and you're listening to this, email me. How did you get here? That's true. Yes, I would love to. If you you are listening to the podcast and you've never heard of thenevadaindependent.com, please email us. (laughs) So that would be a very interesting email. You made it this far into it. So you must have some interest in, in what we're doing. That's right. <laughs> um, so other than the Trump campaign lawsuit, some of the other lawsuits that are going on are similar, like Michelle mentioned earlier. Like we're looking at the the race between Susie Lee and Dan Rodeimer, and, he, and he's kind of doing a similar thing. Yeah. So there's, I am going to count them here. I believe there are four lawsuits that I would classify as the Craig Mueller series This is brought by attorney Craig Mueller. He uh, ran unsuccessfully in the primary for attorney general back in 2018. He, even at that time, had qualms about voter integrity and things like that. So he's taken up four of these lawsuits, really. They were all filed pretty similarly, filed against Clark County, alleging that there were irregularities and fraud in the way that these elections were carried out and essentially seeking in most of these a revote of the entire congressional district or senate district or assembly district depending on which you know jurisdiction he was arguing it in a lot of these centered around accusations that a signature verification machine that kind of automatically identified when a signature was a pretty much an exact match and let that ballot bypass a human eye. You know, this issue was litigated in another case that Riley reviewed earlier in the process. A lot of those uh, complaints were never really, they didn't get past, these court cases did not get past the preliminary stages. So Craig Mueller also claimed that some people went door to door, found when they arrived at certain doors that people that answered, you know, didn't, know the name of the person that was registered to that address or something like that. Ultimately, these never got really past a preliminary phase. They were all struck down at the district court level on what was sort of more of a technicality that Nevada law does not permit you to essentially sue the county and get a revote. 
it requires you to go through a process like Riley's describing in Carson City, where you're actually formally contesting an election. And in some of these cases, ultimately, you know, it's fought out in court, and then it goes to the legislature. The legislature, at the end of the day, has final say in its membership. And so some of these that were contesting legislative seats would have had to ultimately be in the hands of the legislature. So from what we hear, there may be further proceedings in these closer races, but I'll I'll say that the closest race that we're dealing with in these four lawsuits brought by Craig Mueller against Clark County was, I think, 631 votes. That was the closest. There were votes that were closer to 1,600 votes apart. And then the two congressional races, I believe it's about 13,000 and 16,000 was the margin of victory for the Democrats in both of those races. So we're not talking about, you know, a couple ballots being miscounted. They would really have to prove that there was just a vast conspiracy going on. And we did not see really a smoking gun brought up in any of those court cases. And, and and like you were saying that the, the smallest margin was about six hundred and, and something votes, and, and that's in a that's in a state senate or a state legislative race. So there's a lot fewer voters, you know, voting in that in in that race, unlike the the Trump versus Biden race, which had a much obviously a much larger voter base here in Nevada, the, the entire state that is eligible to vote. So the last lawsuit that we wanted to bring up, I guess, is uh, Ross Miller versus Stavros Anthony in the Clark County Commission. Uh, and Ross Miller won by, like you said, 10 votes, which is just a, a tiny margin. Yeah. So the Clark County Commission race involving Stavros Anthony, current Las Vegas City Councilman and Democrat Ross Miller, who is uh, the former two-term Nevada Secretary of State, was a contest that was decided by a mere 10 votes in favor of Ross Miller. And there's there's been a lot of interesting proceedings that have come out of that. We're talking about a race where 153,000 ballots were cast. Um, So 10 vote margin is is very small in these circumstances. Also, you know, Clark County Registrar Joe Gloria identified that there were 139 ballot discrepancies within that district. That doesn't necessarily mean 139 ballots. It sometimes reflects a number of people were checked in at a voting site that didn't match exactly the number of ballots that were at that site. So maybe there was one or two off. Who knows what that is? Is that human error from the poll worker or was that someone voting twice? You just don't really know. But it was enough uncertainty in a 10 vote race that Joe Gloria said, you know, he had some questions about it, that the commission had some concerns about it. So they decided not to certify the results and just take it to a special election, essentially do a do-over. Ross Miller wasn't about to let that fly as the former secretary of state who's worked a lot on elections. I think he was pretty well familiarized with his options. He said, you know, there's no grounds for you just like not accepting these results. Now, there are other ways you could go about it. You could have a recount. It could be an election contest. I think like like what we were seeing in this Trump campaign, but you can't just not certify the results. So indeed, this went to court. The judge said there's not a re- not a way that we can just go straight to a special election. Essentially, the county did end up certifying that election. And now what we're seeing is that Stavros Anthony has asked for a recount of the 153,000 ballots. And how this is going to go down is next week, 
I don't know how many employees, but uh, a lot of folks at the Clark County Elections Department are going to be working almost around the clock from five in the morning to 1030 at night, five days a week. So it's about 90 hours. They're going to be counting these 153,000 ballots again, seeing if the results comes out any different when they do that recount. Stavros Anthony is on the hook for paying for this. This is an $80,000 endeavor. You don't often see a recount of this scale. I can remember the recount that, that comes to mind for me was Skip Daly and, and Jill Dickman up in Washoe County assembly race uh, was decided by 36 votes. There was a recount there, but this, this is way more votes, very expensive. And if Stavros Anthony ends up prevailing in this recount, he will be entitled to basically getting a reimbursement of that $80,000. I was I was curious, you know, what happens if they tied? And I, I do love the, the way that Nevada handles a tie here in the state, which is that they draw cards, which is always fun. I don't know if we've seen that in, in the modern era here of politics, but, you know, maybe we will see that if they end up tying. But Michelle, Riley, thank you so much for, for joining me and kind of going over all of these lawsuits. There's a ton of stuff going on in the courts in Nevada right now as the as the year wraps up. So uh, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Joey. Yeah, thanks, Joey. I am joined by Jasmine Roscoe Rodriguez, also up here in Reno, and we're talking about immigration today. Jasmine, how's it going? Good. How are you doing, Joey? I'm doing well. So the the Biden administration has is, is you know transitioning into its full fledged presidency, and you know during his campaign here in Nevada and elsewhere in the United States, he was talking a lot about immigration policy. And here in Nevada, we have a lot of immigrants. So how is the Biden administration going to to impact the people here in Nevada that are immigrants, you know, whether they're here legally or if they're undocumented, and then and how is that going to affect those people? Yeah, definitely. So just to give a sense of where Nevada stands in terms of the immigrant population, the state has the highest proportion of undocumented immigrants of any state in the U.S. So undocumented immigrants make up an estimated 7% of the Nevada population. And aside from that, there are more than 12,000 DACA recipients and 4,000 TPS beneficiaries in the state too. Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program and the TPS is the temporary protected status that protects immigrants who, you know, don't have their citizenship quite yet. So, you know, how is he going to affect DACA and TPS? And then also things like refugees in the United States and people looking for asylum. So Joe Biden's immigration plan is practically the polar opposite of President Donald Trump's America first philosophy and policies from the last four years. You know, the Trump administration saw just so many rollbacks on legal status protections for TPS beneficiaries. Those protections are set to expire next year, but there is pending litigation. And as for DACA, you know, there was efforts to terminate that protection, but it ultimately survived thanks to the Supreme Court decision this past summer. But aside from that, Joe Biden really, his plan really focuses on reversing a lot of Trump's policies from the last four years and restoring the protections to immigrants as much as he can. And so that includes, you know, reinstating the full DACA protections. And so that just means the DACA program would allow new applicants to enroll 
you know, he wants to halt the funding and the building of the southern border wall between the U.S. and Mexico. He wants to overturn the Muslim travel ban that has evolved throughout Trump's four years in presidency and currently prohibits entry to the U.S. for people from 13 different countries. And his plan also includes to order an immediate review of TPS. It's not very detailed of like, you know, how he will restore the protections or because TPS beneficiaries, they don't just want their protection to be restored because it is temporary, right? That's the whole nature of the program. But they want a road to residency. They want to be permanent residents. They want a more expanded protection to reside in the country. And Biden wants to raise the number of refugees allowed into the U.S. The Trump administration lowered the cap to historically low numbers, which was just 15,000 for this past year. And Biden has pledged to raise that number to 125,000. Other policies that the Biden plan includes are, you know, ending the zero tolerance policy, which saw family separations at the border, which was a huge controversy for the Trump administration. Biden wants to make it easier for permanent residents to obtain citizenship. In an interview, he promised within his first 100 days of presidency to send an immigration bill to the Senate that would streamline the naturalization process for the 11 million undocumented immigrants in the U.S. He also wants to roll back Trump's restrictions on asylum policy. So some of Trump's asylum policies were very restrictive in the way that you know, they required asylum seekers to wait in Mexico while their applications processed. And this process can take weeks or months. It's a, it's a long process. So it's a long time for people to wait in a country and in cities and towns that they're not from and that they don't have homes in. And he also implemented metering, which limits how many applications the United States citizenship and immigration services can process in a day. And so he wants to do away with those restrictions and he also wants to convene a regional meeting of leaders from Central America, Mexico, and Canada to develop a multinational plan to address the increased regional migration patterns. This kind of shows that he wants to take the initiative to create a more collaborative approach toward immigration that involves not just the U.S., but these other countries near us that play a big role in the whole immigration pattern. I'm also kind of just curious, Biden wants to do this kind of stuff in the next 100 days. How likely is it that he can actually kind of get all of this stuff you know, brought to the table? Whether or not Biden can accomplish all of this within the first 100 days of his presidency, I think he can definitely make the effort to present these issues and present some bills, proposals, but you know, whether or not something will get passed um, and approved within the 100 days is... That's just a larger question because, you know, he faces a divided Congress. There's still those two runoff races to, de to decide the Senate happening in Georgia in January. So it, he's really going to need bipartisan support to accomplish his, his goals for immigration reform. I know you talked to some undocumented immigrants and some, you know, people here under either TPS or the DACA program. How are, how are immigrants feeling about the Biden administration as they, we move into the transitionary period? So from the immigrants I spoke to, they were all hoping for the Biden administration. You know, all of them couldn't vote in the election, weren't eligible to vote, right? But they were watching closely and hoping that Biden would uh, move into, into the uh, White House and so now that they've gotten that, that 
just that much closer. You know, I, I would say that there's kind of like a skeptical optimism. Like there is a sense of hope that maybe these, these issues and these status protections and an expanded pathway to citizenship that oh, there's a hope that these things can be accomplished, but they're also, they know that they have to fight for it within their communities and they know that they have to fight with, for it themselves. So I expect to see still a lot of active activism on behalf of immigrant rights organizations and ad- advocates to kind of just keep pushing Biden along. And I'm sure they're going to hold him accountable. But I think that they feel a sense of relief as well. That's something that the people I spoke to mentioned is just feeling a sense of relief that they won't have to relive these last four years that have been really hard and really tumultuous for the for their communities. All right, cool. Well, Jasmine, thank you so much for all the reporting you've done on this. And hopefully we can hear some more about this as, as the transition happens. Jasmine, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Jelly. All right, and so we're on the third segment. I'm Joey Lovato, still up here in Reno, Nevada, and I am joined by our intrepid editor down in Las Vegas, John Ralston. John, how's it going? Hi, Joey. And we, uh, we're back from a nice long break after Thanksgiving, and uh, you know, we haven't done this in a while, and Elizabeth's off today, so we're allowed to do it. We're going to talk about movies again. <laughs> yes, don't tell her. Yes, I won't. I promise. So yeah, we've both been off for we've, we both took two weeks off. Everyone else took a week off. And so I've gotten a ton of movies watched. You took a uh, watch a ton of movies. You know, what what did you see? And, uh, you know, let's let's kind of give the audience some some movie recommendations for the holiday period here. Well, I, I, I saw a bunch of movies. I, I saw so many. I don't remember them all. Joey, that's how much I relaxed on my break. <laughs> uh, I, there, I was really struck by a couple that I've seen recently. The Last Black Man in, in San Francisco and Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which I know you've seen both of those. So let, can, can we, let's talk about them one at a time so we can both give our, our reviews. Yeah, sure. Last Black Man in San Francisco, I thought, you know, at the beginning of it, I was really wondering, like, what's going on here? This is kind of weird. It's it's kind of put together in, in, a, in a strange, odd way. It didn't seem very coherent. But then it became to me like totally engrossing and almost a hallucinatory experience watching it and being, you know, totally enraptured with this guy's story and his view of San Francisco, which is a city I absolutely love. I think it may be the best city uh, in America in some ways. But I, and, and just by the end, I was just totally captured by the power of, of, of what he had done uh, with this movie. And then I, I, maybe you did this too. I read a little bit about it. And the guy who was the star is actually the real guy who experienced this. And he and his friend put, put the movie together. And, and it was just, it was, it, it really had an impact on me. You know, most movies you see, even if you like them, you don't think about them much afterwards. This one stayed with me for a while. It's still with me. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And I, I grew up in San Francisco. I moved to Nevada when I was like six. So I guess growing up might be a little bit of an exaggeration, but my entire family is back there. So I probably visit four or five times a year. Um, not this year, unfortunately, but so just from a visual standpoint, it was incredibly nostalgic for me. Just, I mean, it captures San Francisco in such an interesting way. And it also captures a side of San Francisco that you don't get to see a whole lot. And something that I don't 
I, you know, I haven't really experienced when I've visited and stuff, but it also captures the parts of San Francisco that I was used to seeing and the big hills and the, the houses and everything. So I, I think if you're curious about San Francisco at all, and, you know, maybe haven't experienced it that much, it's a very good example of what it feels like to be there. And I won't spoil the movie, but I will say that the last scene in the movie, it really hit kind of hits home and really sticks with you in kind of a haunting way, I would say. But by the end, I feel like you've experienced a lot of this guy's life and, and, it, it, it's a very it's weirdly comforting in a movie a movie that is you know not <laughs> necessarily happy it has these moments that are just very comfortable and very sweet and and i don't know it, it for again a movie that ends pretty ambiguously it still has some optimism at least for me that i really enjoyed it's awesome i, I agree with everything that you said and you used some words that i think very, really captured the movie well it was sweet in a lot of ways but it was haunting in a, in a lot of ways too. And it was sad and it was mournful and, and, and in, in some ways, but it was also optimistic and forward looking in, in some ways too. And, and I, I think really there were a lot of universal themes in there too, that weren't just San Francisco specific. The fact that it was set in San Francisco was so great because of all the reasons that you've stated. And it's such a mm-hmm beautiful city. And it did show parts of the city that I didn't really know very well or knew existed at all. And just the backstory of how, you know, Danny Glover was a small role in that and is a San Francisco native and helped get the movie funded and all all the rest of it was great too. And even though it was a small role, it's kind of a pivotal role in, 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 in the movie. And it's just, it's, it's a, I think it's the first uh, a movie that the, the guy directed. I, I I can't wait to see what this guy does in the future. Yeah, I know. Me too. And if you have seen the movie, the friend in the movie is also the main character in HBO's Lovecraft Country, which is something that I've been meaning to start. I love HP Lovecraft. So uh, check that out. And also, if you want to watch the movie, it's available on uh, Amazon Prime. So you've got another movie you want to talk about too, John. What was that one? The, the, the movie is A Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I'm, I know you've seen this too. So I'll let you get the first review on this one, Joey. Okay, yeah, Portrait of Lady on Fire. It's in French, I believe. It's I watched it last year. And it's a pretty simple movie. I think it has like three characters in the whole movie, really, or three or four. And it's about this wealthy French woman in, I, oh gosh, I'm not even sure the era. I think it's late 1800s. Yeah, and, and it's kind of hard to tell the era almost. I mean, other than the clothes and this kind of the way that they live. But this wealthy mother wants to have a portrait of her daughter painted so that she can you know, have her marry a suitor and the having a portrait painted is a good way to do that. And then the the painter woman shows up to paint the portrait of this young woman. And uh, lo and behold, the young woman does not want her portrait painted. And so she has to do it in secret. And so it's kind of this whole, these two, this painter and this, this young woman, kind of their relationship, how this painter has to secretly observe her so that she can create this painting for the mother and then kind of their relationship and how it develops. You know, it's, it, it is in, way, in a way a very simple and, and predictable movie, but what's great about it, and I really think it's great, is how they take something that has such a simple theme or themes and, and predictable outcome, and, and the acting is just so good, I thought, Joey, and the script, there are so many lines where you just, you're saying, wow, they made it much deeper than, than a simple story like that could have been and, and and I thought it was just so beautifully done. It was beautifully shot, 
beautifully acted. And again, since since I mentioned it with the previous movie, the universal themes of 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 love and loss and 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 the strictures of a society back then for women and, and what would be allowed and what wouldn't be allowed. And uh, I thought all the characters were utterly believable. The two central characters and the mother were all utterly believable. Their performances were were, were so good and especially in a movie that you watch uh, with subtitles, which mm-hmm. can diminish sometimes the impact of a movie. I, 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 I really, I really enjoyed it. And, and, and my girlfriend was totally enraptured by it. I thought it was one of the best movies uh, she had uh, ever seen. She was really blown away by it. And I liked it only slightly less than she did. There was a point in the movie where I was like, is this a horror movie? Is this going to become a horror movie? And I still don't know. There are some very haunting and kind of scary scenes in the movie. And they're not scary as in like a jump scare or anything. It's just very tense. It's made that way. I think probably intentionally, although mm-hmm, some of it is sure. unintentional, like, and, and I don't think it's too much of a spoiler because it's given away very early in the movie that the one of the daughter's sister has apparently committed suicide or, or something, which it, 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 it plays into the narrative. And you're really not clear on the circumstances. So that's always a uh, hangover. And there are points in the second half of the movie where the, where she sees an apparition the, the painter sees an apparition of the of, of the woman that she's supposed to be painting and that is very that is very unsettling but then you really by the end you understand what's going on there and it just I think it deepens the the emotion that you feel for those two by, by the end but because of the setting the isolation of the place I understand why you might get the sense that this could be a horror movie in the making yeah, I don't think I would actually classify it as a horror movie, but there were moments where I was like, is that where this is going? So yeah, I would highly recommend watching that too. It is a little bit of a slower burn, so just be prepared for that. But I love slow movies, so. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't mind slow movies if, if afterwards there's an aggregate payoff and where, where, where it's leading up to something. Both those movies really that we're talking about today, Joey, are slow movies. But but pack an emotional wallop, both of them. Uh, I think I, I highly I highly recommend both of them. And the second one, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, the script in addition to the acting, I think is just phenomenal. Yeah. Well, I want to leave you with two more recommendations, just because it is 2020, and both of those movies end on a little bit of an ambiguous note. You could take them in a sad way or a happy way, kind of depending on how you feel that day. But since 2020 has been a little bit of a depressing year, I want to leave you with two movies, two movies that um, I thought were very like sweet and uplifting and similar to to actually both Portrait of Lady on Fire and Last Black Man in San Francisco, but Before Sunrise and Before Sunset, the sequel. And there's also a third one Before Midnight, which I have not seen yet, but David Linklater directed them. The guy who did Boyhood, it's starring Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy, I think is her last name. And it's just two people who meet on a train and the time that at least the first one is these two people who meet on a train and they have one night together and they explore Vienna and it's really sweet and it's really nice. And I'm not like, I really don't like like romantic comedies or these like romance movies really, but this movie, it tackles really interesting philosophical ideas and it also captures Vienna. And then the second movie captures Paris beautifully. And it just makes you want to kind of go visit those places. And it also, for me, the reason that I like them so much and they put such a smile on my face this year is just they're walking around a city without masks on, just enjoying other people and music. And it just, it reminds me of a time before 2020. And it's really 
nice <laughs> and it's something much needed this year i think so I, I would highly recommend both before sunset and before sunrise i haven't seen either of those and joey my reaction has always been whenever i hear people talk about them and they usually talk about them in very gushing terms like ethan hawk and some uh, actress i'd never heard of uh, meet on a train and then decide to get off the train at the same place and spend this meaningful night together it's like i have no interest in that whatsoever <laughs> i'm not a big i mean i like romantic movies but that's just doesn't that just doesn't sound that interesting to me and by the way i like ethan hawk as an actor too and a lot of things that he's done uh, but i just i and it never occurred to me those would be any good at all to watch i didn't know or i had forgotten or or I didn't make the connection that those are those are David Linklater movies. I did not know uh, that Boyhood is a superb achievement and mm-hmm. a really, really interesting. So that makes me want to see them more. But generally, people have said, no, you, you, it's not just how I superficially described it. It's, there's much <laughs> more to it than that. And, 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 and so uh, on your recommendation at some point. Uh, I will see those now. I, the thought that there's three of them, that they could actually squeeze three of them out of it uh, is amazing to me. Well, I think it's really interesting because I think it shows the development of, of a relationship over time and kind of how people grow and change. And they were the movies were shot nine years apart from each other and they take place nine years apart from each other in different points in these people's relationship. And they're nice and short. I think they're like only an hour and 20 minutes. So, so it's similar to Boyhood in, in, in the stretch of time that they're trying to portray. I get it. I would I would recommend them. I will say that go in not expecting like a like a very big plot. It's a much more David Linklater. If you've seen any of the other movies, it's a much more kind of slice of life watching people kind of learn to get to know each other. So great movie, great music, great sense of place. And it's just it's comfortable in a time where we're all stuck inside. It reminds me of a time when I could walk around other cities. Well, John, thank you for uh, giving us some recommendations. We'll be back for a couple weeks before we're off for uh, Christmas and on to a new year. Thanks, John. Thanks, Joey. And now we want to take a minute to dive a little deeper into the context of the coronavirus in Nevada. To help us do that, as always, is Nevada Independent Healthcare reporter Megan Messerly. Megan, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. All right, Megan. So before we get into anything else, it's been a while. So let's do the numbers. I'm noting that we're recording at 9.30 a.m. on Friday, December 4th. What can you tell us about the data? Yeah, so we're sitting at about a little bit more than 160,000 cases across Nevada since the beginning of the pandemic this morning, and we're at 2,259 deaths. Now, I think it's interesting to note, we actually saw our peak in cases in the seven-day average actually over the weekend, and we've seen a couple of days of decreases in the case numbers since then. Public health officials, though, they're looking at that data and saying, you know, okay, is that a real decrease, you know, a decrease associated with less viral transmission, or is this a decrease that's a result of the fact that many testing sites were closed over the Thanksgiving holiday? There's probably some delays with lab reporting, uh, you know, labs just maybe not processing results as, as fast over the Thanksgiving holiday. So they're still waiting to see, you know, what that data is going to look like. I think public health officials have been expecting to see a spike associated with uh, Thanksgiving, obviously the result of Thanksgiving gatherings. We have not seen that yet in the data, but it's still a little bit early to see that. Um, as we've talked about before on this podcast, take some time for, you know, one, you have to get infected, then it takes some time for that, you know, illness to actually develop. 
then you have to go and seek out testing, then you have to get those test results back. So it takes a little bit of time for that to show up in the data. So the fact that we haven't seen that yet doesn't mean that that isn't still coming. I think it's also worth noting that yesterday on Thursday, we did see a slight uptick in cases. So that, that could be a possible you know, course correction if there was sort of an artificial um, you know, decrease because of the holiday. So we'll be keeping an eye on that in the days to come to see, sort of see where the data goes. Same thing with hospitalizations. You know, we've been keeping an eye on those. Uh, you know, we hit um, we hit a record uh, on uh, two days ago. We saw a one day decrease, and now you know we're going to be waiting to see. Okay, where do hospitalizations go from here? And part of the problem just overall is hospital capacity, right? Um, you know, you look at the numbers across the state. Washoe County, we've talked about, has been hit particularly hard by this, uh, you know, virus um, in, in this winter season, this fall winter season. Renown has opened up their alternate care site uh, in, in their parking garage where they are treating patients. There was a tweet from President Trump this week, uh, quote tweeting another tweet, essentially saying that that patients weren't being treated in that parking garage. They, they are. That facility is actively um, treating patients. So it's not a great situation for hospitals. Some hospitals are putting off elective surgeries again. Others are, according to the hospital association, literally evaluating this on a day-by-day basis. You know, they meet in the morning and say, okay, here are the surgeries we have for the day. Which ones can we do and which ones do we need to bump just because we don't have the resources? So some of them are trying to manage that more on a a day-by-day basis versus um, an across-the-board decision. So essentially, we're just waiting to see you know, where the data goes from here, are we going to see a big spike or things going to get worse because of Thanksgiving gatherings? Um, and, and we just don't know yet, you know, because it takes some time for that to show up in the data. Mm. Well, switching gears a bit, we are now closer than ever to having a vaccine. We have successful, it appears, vaccine candidates from Pfizer and Moderna, and the FDA is currently looking at whether or not to approve those on an emergency basis. And which means, Theoretically, we should be seeing the first doses show up relatively soon here in the next couple of weeks. But that doesn't mean everybody's going to get a vaccine. So what do we know about Nevada's plan? They've discussed it a few times already and as recently as last week. How have things changed? Yeah, so there was a press conference where Governor Sisolak and a couple state uh, immunization officials were talking about, you know, the latest updates to the plan. And essentially what they said, you know, is we can expect to see the first doses of the vaccine arrive in Nevada by mid-December. That's, you know, in accordance with the timeline for approving uh, or giving initial authorization for the the Pfizer vaccine. There will be a meeting of a FDA committee on December 10th. So they're expecting that if all goes well, you know, we would start to see the first vaccine show up in short order. Those will come into the state, then they'll redistribute them. Um, I think it's worth noting, like you mentioned, this isn't going to be available to everyone off the bat. It's going to go to frontline healthcare workers first. You know, you can imagine the folks in the ER who are actively uh, treating COVID patients every day. These are the people who are going to be first in line to get uh, to get the vaccine. It's worth noting that um, there's a plan in place to actually have uh, healthcare facilities stagger uh, which staff are taking the dose at, at different times because they don't want, there are some side effects associated with it, you know, uh, a sore arm, a, a low grade fever. Uh, so just in case folks are having side effects, um, they, they want to sort of stagger the, the timeline in which their staff are receiving those doses. And the other big group that 
uh, we expect to see uh, receive the vaccine early are uh, residents of long-term care facilities. So those are nursing home residents. Um, that was actually a, a recent change recommended uh, by the CDC. Um, a lot of the long-term uh, care facilities were pushing for inclusion because originally, um, at least according to Nevada's plan, they were going to be a little bit further down the line. They weren't necessarily in that sort of, you know, top of tier one uh, group. Um, but because we've seen so many deaths associated with nursing home residents, um, there's, there's been a big push to get those folks vaccinated early on. And so that is Nevada's plan right now. It'll be the, the frontline healthcare workers and nursing home residents who, who are at the front of the line to receive the vaccine when we get those um, first doses this month. Mm. So like you mentioned, not everyone's going to get the vaccine at once. And obviously, there's going to be a limited amount of the vaccine uh, when it first arrives, which means the trends we're looking at now are going to continue for at least some time. Now, uh, Nevada, as you mentioned earlier, not doing particularly great as we see these peak numbers and key categories. But regionally, we've seen that too. And that has come to a head in California, where restrictions have become a lot more severe over the last couple of days. Has there been any talk about what kind of impacts these regional restrictions might have on Nevada and specifically the Nevada economy? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. Um, and it's worth noting right now that we're uh, 11 days out from the end of a three-week statewide pause um, that was announced before Thanksgiving and limited um, capacity at, at, um, at, at restaurants and uh, museums and other facilities. Retail establishments are allowed to continue to operate at 50%. It also limited um, gatherings back down to 10 people. Um, two, two households can gather together at a time. Uh, it also requires masks to be worn sort of in, in all situations. Obviously, that, that can't necessarily be enforced in the privacy of your own backyard or your own home. But folks are being advised that if you do, you know, have people over that, that they should be wearing masks. Um, so we're waiting to see, you know, what happens and where, where we go from here. Um, Governor Sisolak this week, you know, noted that our, our data is not turning around, you know, it, those decreases in, in cases that we mentioned are not sustained at this point. And so we can't, um, we can't say we're out of the woods by any means. And in fact, like we mentioned, the numbers may get even worse. Um, and so he said that he may need to take stronger action. But it's worth noting, I actually asked uh, Governor Sisolak this week at that press conference, uh, whether he was considering any, you know, travel restrictions, travel advisories, travel bans, any testing requirements, you know, Hawaii, for instance, obviously, they have a little bit different of a situation because they're an island and they can control their borders a little bit more easily, but they, you know, require people to be tested uh, before arriving to Hawaii, otherwise they have to quarantine. So I asked him whether Nevada was considering, you know, anything like that or, um, you know, asking visitors to quarantine for 14 days upon arrival. Uh, and he said right now he's not considering any travel uh, related restrictions. And obviously this is a theme we've, we've seen, you know, for the past couple of months, just because our economy is so uh, dependent on tourism, you know, uh, I think folks have been kind of cautious to, to do anything that might, you know, our folks want to get come to Nevada if they if they need to get tested and go and go through these hoops. So, uh, so that's not being considered at this time. But the governor has said that if the data doesn't turn around in the next 11 days, we will see um, stronger restrictions. And and it's worth noting that I mean, our data isn't great. Um, you know, we we surpassed our seven-day average for deaths um, this week. Uh, we're second in the nation for hospitalizations. And so, you know, there's good reason to look at the numbers and be concerned. Um, on the other hand, one of the things Governor Sisolak said at his press conference this week is, you know, hope is on the horizon, right? If people can just social distance, wear masks, um, you know, the first vaccines are arriving uh, this month. And, and again, that's not for everyone, but this is, you know, the beginning of the end. And so I think 
the message that we're hearing from from government officials is just, you know, if we can just stay the course and and do our best for the next couple of months, um, you know, uh, the general population might be able to receive doses by by the spring or by by the middle of the year, and then we'll we'll be in a better place. Well, finally, maybe a little light at the end of the tunnel. We'll have to leave it there for now. As always, if you want to know more about the coronavirus in Nevada, you can head to our website, thenevadaindependent.com. There you can find weekly updates from Megan in her coronavirus contextualized series, as well as a regularly updated dashboard with all the latest COVID-19 data. Megan, thanks for joining me. Happy to be here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Michelle Rendells, Riley Snyder, Jasmine Orozco Rodriguez, John Ralston, and Megan Messerly for being on the show this week. If you like listening to the podcast, consider leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you like to listen. Do you have thoughts about the podcast? Let us know by emailing me at joey at thenvindy.com or jacob at thenvindy.com. Our theme song was written and performed by Reno band People With Bodies. If you want to hear more of their music, you can find it on Spotify and Bandcamp. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>